0: Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in meditation, dharma, emptiness, metasystematicity, remembrance of death, and much more. My name is Michael W. Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking with Vince Horn. Vincent Horn is part of a new generation of teachers and translators exploring dharma in the age of the network. A computer engineering dropout turned full-time contemplative he spent his 20s co-founding the Groundbreaking Buddhist Geeks podcast, while simultaneously doing a full year in total of silent retreat practice. Vincent began teaching in 2010, having been authorized in both the Pragmatic Dharma lineage of Kenneth Folk and by Trudy Goodman, guiding teacher of Insight LA, in the Insight meditation tradition. Vince has been called a, quote, power player of the mindfulness movement, By Wired Magazine and was featured in Wired UK's Smart List 50 People Who Will Change the World. He currently lives in the Blue Ridge Mountains outside of Asheville, North Carolina, with his partner, Emily Horn, and their son, Xander. This is an unusual episode of the Deconstructing Yourself podcast, in that it's part two of a joint interview between Vince and myself. Part one appeared on the Buddhist Geeks podcast recently and we continue the conversation here. The topic of these discussions is a subject that both of us are actively developing, together with many others, which we call Metadharma. In brief, Metadharma refers to the many different ways that the Dharma is being adapted, remixed, and redefined to meet the unique challenges and opportunities of the current moment. We talk more about what we mean by Metadharma in part one of this podcast, which you can listen to over at Buddhist Geeks. And now, without further ado, I give you part two of the episode Vince and I are calling Why Metadharma? So one thing we haven't really touched upon yet is what metadharma might mean on the ground, like in terms of practice or in terms of the actual Sangha structure or in terms of really anything about what it would be or could be except we're talking about these temporary utopias. But what do you see as potential, you know, are there metadharma practices that are somehow distinct from, you know, Suryana, Vajrayana, Mahayana practice?
1: Yeah, yeah, well, wow, that's a huge question, isn't it? You know, one thing that occurs to me is the social meditation or interpersonal relational practices seem somehow really important as a bridge away from the sort of hyper-individually focused dharmas that we've inherited, a way of practicing that more explicitly brings other people into our experience and our experience into theirs. And this has been one of my main focuses as a teacher the last several years. I almost don't teach anything except social meditation these days because I found it so powerful for revealing social conditioning. And that social conditioning can be hidden Even after decades of solo practice, you know, that longtime Dharma practitioners will come and do social practice, social noting, you know, which Kenneth Folk developed, social meta, which I've been working on, social inquiry practices. And suddenly they're like become aware of this whole other domain that just never arose in their solo practice because there weren't other people there, (laughs) basically, I think that's an important part of something that would be included as part of a larger metadharma approach, some sort of social practices.
0: So now, as I understand Kenneth's social noting, we're like sitting together and maybe just even as a dyad, right? And basically doing Vipassana noting of what's arising, like itching, queasiness, and I'm saying it out loud so that you can hear it and you're saying yours out loud so I can hear it. Yes, is that a fair summary of the practice, or is there more to it than that?
1: I think that's the simple form of it. There's a lot of variations, but in essence, yes.
0: And what are you working on with social meta?
1: May you be happy?
0: Oh, to the other person directly?
1: yeah, out loud, directly, working with phrases, taking turns, playing with like the who of who it's sent to. you know, I, we, they um working with different groups explicitly. I think that's one area that you know, maybe hasn't been explored much. You know, if we're talking about oppression and marginalization and different group identities, you know, actually working with groups that you have some discomfort around, you know, actually sending meta to all African-Americans, sending meta to all Arab-Americans, you know, things like that. I am mean, using the American context here because that's a lot of where my focus is. But I um, mean, you know, it could be anything, any groups. And then part of it, too, is working with the pith the meta pith, which is something that Sharon Salzberg writes about, but isn't usually taught because it's something that usually arises on long retreats. But at some point when the meta starts really taking off, the phrases become clunky and it's just like a single word, like happy, healthy, open heart and actually verbalizing the pith as well, which ends up sounding a lot like noting. (laughs) And this is what's very interesting, that these social practices in their more simplified and spontaneous form, they start to really meld together and merge together into something that feels a little more perennial-ish.
0: Now, I'm just curious, when you're describing this practice to people, you kind of talked about it just a moment ago, but I'd like to hear more about what makes this different? If I'm used to noting on my own and now I'm noting aloud with you there and you're noting aloud with me there, what changes when that happens and how is that part of metadharma?
1: Yeah, well, I'll use the metta practice as an example, M-E-T-T-A, because that one I found it's like particularly powerful when it's done out loud with other people. For me, it's almost been embarrassing to realize how ineffective the silent metta is in comparison because it's such an interpersonal practice anyway you're imagining people and then sending them loving kindness but if you actually have someone in front of you and you're like may you be happy there's something about saying that and it being received and hearing your own voice that just makes it so much more real and that's the thing that i've heard from people who've done that practice is that it just works Better. (laughs) And I think that's with social meta in particular, that really helps that practice. And I think I would include that with the meta dharma canon is (laughs) (laughs) meta canon. Thank you. (laughs) Is that the realizations that people develop, and I include myself in this, that I've developed in this particular specialized context of being quiet and by myself or on like a long retreat or something like this. It's great and it's beautiful and it's profound, but it doesn't translate well to other domains and it doesn't translate well into relationships, which is so much of life and relationships are a huge part of how are we going to build coalitions and coordinate and take political action um, how are we going to do any of that stuff how are we going to live in communities how are we going to share resources when you know the resources start running out if we can't be with each other in a kind-hearted understanding compassionate discerning ways and if we haven't trained those capacities and have no way to train them or bring those capacities into relationship directly you know, but my experience is a lot of meditators are more awkward yeah. <laughs> socially. Yeah. I yeah. tweeted this the other day like the friendliest people I meet are at bowling alleys these days, and, and, <laughs> and, the, and the coldest, weirdest people, and the kind of rudest people are like in meditation centers and in academia.
0: Yeah, well, there's a reason, you know, these people have chosen to sit alone in a room and meditate, right? <laughs> one of them might be that they're really good at that, but another one might be, you know, the world outside is not where they're succeeding. So, mm, there is fair. some self-selection going on there for sure. And Yeah. You know, spoken from someone who, you know, once spent three months meditating in a room. You
1: know? Yeah, yeah.
0: The social aspect is obviously really necessary for some. You know, I have not always been a Buddhist practitioner or a Buddhism-only practitioner. As you know, I spent a lot of time doing Hindu Tantra and even in Boulder doing Sufi Zikr stuff. Mm. And, you know, having been in different communities and experienced them, both of those communities are much better at this social thing like if you get together and do kirtan with a group for real, it knocks the average group meta session out of the water in terms Absolutely. of just love vibe and connection and everyone together and you yes. know, sort of the mood
1: you're describing. Absolutely. Um, Agreed.
0: Yeah. You know, and after doing years of that, like, okay, we're just all going to cry for the love of Hanuman here as we're singing, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and then you go to like, you're in your Buddhist retreat and everyone's like sending Metta to the world. It just seems so cold and rational and completely like yes, non-emotional uh, paradoxically.
1: Yeah, I agree. hundred percent.
0: So I could see some of these kirtan slash zikr type practices really playing a role in this as well.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: social part. I mean, they're not as one-on-one interactive, but it's group interactive in a way that tends to be very, I don't know, intimate and connected.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I love me some kirtan.
0: Yeah. Right. It's just awesome. So
1: when you got the right group of people (laughs) together.
0: Sure. And as you do it over years with groups, you know, it really becomes quite a thing Mm. and has that intersubjective, You know, we all really see each other kind of flavor and it's not collapsed in on itself or turned towards the navel gazing, but really hard open and exterior outward.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that came to mind when you asked the question, you know, about practice, and this is a little less concrete, but it's something I've been thinking about lately, is this distinction that our mutual friend Daniel Ingram makes about sort of the content versus the process level of experience, you know, where the content is kind of like the story, you know, we're engaging in the story and we're maybe fully immersed in the story of our lives. And the process is when we're sort of aware of what makes the story up and kind of seeing the nature of the story as it arises and vanishes.
0: To me, this is the core of Vipassana, right? There's that first level when you go from kind of thinking about a thing to actually feeling a thing. But then there's a shift later on where it goes from being a thing to kind of being a process. The nature of Vipassana is trying to get to that place where you're seeing or experience the process.
1: Yes, and eventually, you know, using Shinzen's language, like following that process back to its source. Yes. So the point being these two poles and, you know, what I've been finding interesting are practices that kind of straddle the middle, that have some recognition of the process and of not being kind of like locked into stories and being able to examine stories and move in and out of stories and, you know, investigate stories, but at the same time are engaged enough with the content of the mind and of stories that they can actually have some kind of impact at that level, at the level that counts and the world level.
0: Yeah, this is crucial. Honestly, to me, this is something I've been thinking about a lot. As you know, on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast recently, I've been having a lot of discussion about psychology and meditation. And I think that there's a lot of angles on that, a lot of really interesting stuff. But something that I've really been wanting to talk about is the fact that you don't always have to pursue the Vipassana down to the process level. And vanish into the source. Yeah. Especially when vanishing into the source becomes, you know, pretty straightforward for you. Yes. Backing back out to that content level becomes really fascinating.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Right. Suddenly the content level becomes interesting and has the potential to be transformed. This would be the third turning move, right? That's a real vajrayana move is to watch that thing bursting from the source, but the method is to simply on purpose hang with content. And it's something I really love with the shinzen method is that because we're, you know, working with emotions and thoughts very explicitly a lot, when you do hang out at the content level, you have a whole very rich palette of interaction to observe, right? It's not just interacting processes vanishing into the source, but it's it's the source bubbling forth into multiple really fascinating interacting content. And that's psychological and intersubjective, right? We can do it with others. Mm -hmm. So to me, this is huge. And it's how we can start to do something that I think is really crucial in metadharma is to include psychology.
1: Yes. What you're saying reminds me of one of the techniques I ran across while I was at Integral Institute, the big mind method of Gimpo Roshi's, another kind of controversial figure, but also, you know, someone who had the sort of brilliant insight to bring together voice dialogue, which was a psychological technique developed by Hal and Sidra Stone during the Human Potential Movement, where they were actually directly accessing and speaking from these different psychological voices or sub-selves, like, let me speak to the voice of the controller or the inner child or the protector, things like that. He was doing that work and then sort of had the insight like, oh, well, I wonder if that would work too with some of these transpersonal Zen states like big mind or big heart or the master or perfect compassion or things like that. And it It, totally works. It does. Yeah. (laughs) For a vast majority of people, it really works well.
0: And I can hear some very specific Zen traditionalists excoriating (laughs) Genpo Roshi right now for not being Zen enough. But yeah, it's a cool technique and really brilliant. I haven't done it a lot, but I've done it enough to really appreciate it. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: you can see how, yes, you can go to big mind, you can go to big heart, but you could also, from that place, come back and work with some of the other parts of the personality in a more psychological way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you could access those parts or be in those parts and kind of like think about, well, how am I going to respond to this situation? Or like, how are we going to mount a response to the ecological crisis? Like let me speak to the voice of the cosmocentric mind and see, you know as cosmocentric mind, what I notice about this.:
0: Right. Now, speaking of ecological crisis, I understand that you have a new project going up. Can I just get you to talk about that for a minute? It sounds really fascinating. I'm really intrigued by the emoji.
1: Oh, thank you. The chick, the little chick emoji. emoji. Yeah, the little chicken. He's like sitting there. So cute. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so when we launched our new Buddhist Geek site, actually, it's a web of sites. It's not a website. It's a web of sites because there's so many. They all link together. (laughs) One of the websites in the Buddhist Geek's lab is what we're calling the Buddhist Geek's farm. And this is a contemplative community startup project wherein I'm trying my best to invite folks who are interested in the possibility of living together in a kind of post-capitalist contemplative community that grows food and hosts ongoing contemplative retreats and practices together and lives together and is trying to, in some sense, reduce our ecological footprint and figure out how to share in an open source way the things we're learning. It's kind of like a reboot of the monastic environment, but in this sort of new time that we're in. So that's the idea of the farm. And it's very much theoretical at this point. It's something I've been thinking about Obsessively, it has a website, it has a website, farm.buddhistgeeks.org. <laughs> um, but it's something I've been obsessing over, like literally spending nights up thinking about for like the last four years. It was something that was so important to me and so up that until recently I couldn't even talk about it because I was too concerned that like sharing it before I was ready, it would just not be good to do that. But now I feel like I've kind of enough of the pieces are there. You know conceptually, and i 'm in an apprenticeship program with my grandparents who are <laughs> teaching me the ways of farming that <laughs> it feels more real, and so i 'm trying to find some co collaborators to live on a farm together, basically and start a little Buddhist geeks farm and retreat
0: well, this is core Americanness down to the ground I mean you know the American social history of communes and radical spiritual. Farms or groups goes right back to you know the pilgrims, yes, and America had a bunch of super fascinating like group sex commune farms in the eighteen hundreds and so on, I mean, always around either charismatic leader or some kind of charismatic religious principle. Mm-hmm. I assume this is not a group sex farm, or am I uh, not publicly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: No yeah. nor is it a strict traditionalist five precept farm either. <laughs> you know, part of our meta-ethics of Buddhist geeks is we don't abuse substances unless it's an explicit part of the container practice. We don't bring in substances unless we say we're going to bring in substances. Right. It's not hidden. Yeah. And, you know, uh, the other part of our meta-ethics is, you know, one person's kinky taboo is another person's normal, healthy, sexual life. So it's like, you know, there's space for all of that, I think. And There has to be living in community with people.
0: In your vision, how big is the Buddhist Geeks Farm?
1: I'm thinking of this kind of instantiation, you know, of here in Western North Carolina, where I live, where we'd like to start the Genesis Farm, if you will, the first <laughs> farm. It's maybe like 20 to 30 people at most. And my hope is that some portion of those are Regular residents like I would be, and my wife and son living there ongoingly. And then others might be more there for months at a time. And still others might come in for a week or two to practice and check out the farm life and see what it's like, you know, to do their retreat practice there in a supportive environment where they can have like fresh, healthy food and sort of experience something of our attempt at a temporary utopia you know, and I'm sure it'll be hard and difficult and plenty of things will be fucked up and not work, but I'm willing to make that risk at this point. Cause it seems like the path that I've been on, you know, it's also not sustainable. So yeah.
0: Excellent. I love this vision.
1: You want to come out to the farm and, uh, <laughs> <you're> <laughs> for a little while. You're welcome. <laughs> we'll have a space for you, Michael.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Okay. So this is like Combining the ideas of kind of a monastery with radical ecological principle, right? You're trying to have zero footprint or minimal yeah. footprint and create food and stuff. And so, this yeah. itself is like a life practice of the yeah. Dharma.
1: Yeah. In our last conversation, we talked about, you know, the four quadrants of Wilbur and, you know, the kind of interior and exterior of the individual and collective. Like, to me, this is sort of like an attempt at how can we build a different kind of culture and different kind of community and different kind of economics within this little temporary autonomous zone, as you said. And how would that change our experience of life? And would that be something that could actually contribute to the sort of transition that seems like our species needs to make away from this sort of old industrial revolution tech toward open source, in my mind, toward, toward technology where, you know, the information is free so people can innovate quickly and rapidly and, and respond to situations without having to get bogged down by proprietary nonsense. You know, even the tech world gets this. You know, the Buddhist world, we're so far behind on this point. Microsoft is the biggest contributor to the open source software movement. You know, because they realize it's good for them and it's good for the ecology of tech to give away the most critical innovations. You know, Elon Musk does the same thing with his trademarks and electric vehicle stuff. Maybe that's something that the farm is really focused on as a sort of open source Dharma idea of giving away what it is that we discover freely so we can... You know, mount a collective response. One of our main goals is to get the living expenses for a yearly resident down to $1,000 a month. It would include everything that they need to live their housing, their food, some sort of basic healthcare, education, energy, transportation, and entertainment, all covered with $1,000 a month. If we could do that, and then, of course, you have to work them on the farm as well, but I think that could free up time and energy for people to contribute in other ways that are really hard to do in our current economic system where it's like, you know, more than 50% of people don't have any savings in America. And so people are constantly just trying to bust their ass to make enough money to just take care of their basic needs and their Netflix bill. And so that's part of my hope is to build a space where people can free up some of their time and share
0: their Netflix account,
1: Yeah, share their Netflix account to collectivize and to demonetize so that we can you know, start to imagine some sort of different ways of living together. It's very idealistic, I know.
0: <laughs> it's cool. Again, it's a beautiful vision.
1: Yeah, thanks.
0: It's funny you use the word collectivize. That makes me think of the Dharma Collective here.
1: Yeah, right.
0: Which I think of as another manifestation of metadharma. I'll say they, because I'm a teacher. It's really a we, but I'll say, you know, where they are attempting to have a vibrant, powerful, compelling, close-knit, heartfelt Dharma community, a center without any guiding teacher or teachers, Mm -hmm. right? Where it's just completely student-run and is not any particular Buddhism either. You know, it's not a particular form of Buddhism. And so this is, to me, really interesting and radical and new, And part of the metadharma scene where this arose out of the ashes of an against the stream center. Yes. Where the people loved having that community, loved having that place to practice, but were, you know, faced with the imminent destruction of the center, imminent shattering of the community within one month, right? It's like a one month notice. Hey, this is going to close in a month. That's it. Sorry. Everybody go home. Yep. And instead they said no, you know, and got together some lawyers in the community. There's tax people in the community and they all got together and formed a 501c3 and just took it over. And so, you know, this is another radical form where it's not a teacher and their center. It's a center that is accessing teachers and putting on programs from the community. So it's kind of a uh, bottom-up or you know, the workers are leading the means of Dharma production here.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it's a kind of like an anti-fragile project too.
0: Absolutely. It's really interesting how robust it is. I mean, it's almost a year here that it's been going and I think that's very surprising to a lot of people. But seeing it happening from the ground up week by week It's not surprising me. I mean, the minute that it wasn't just another Dharma center run by some teacher somewhere, but instead was like, you know, their thing, our thing, the energy level just skyrocketed. Everybody got engaged. Everybody got interested. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of jostling and a lot of different opinions and a lot of real, you know, human conflict. But again, now suddenly we're on the interpersonal level again, where we're not just all sitting quietly while some teacher tells us the meaning of life, right? Instead, it's like there's a whole community that has to work its shit out going on. And I just find this extremely fascinating. And as one of the teachers there, I can't be on the collective committee, right? So that's why I keep saying they.
1: Right. I, I talked to Katie about that. That was one of my criticisms, actually, of SFDC, <laughs> to be honest with you. And I shared that with her in our public conversation as well. Yeah, You know, to me, the challenge is how to distribute authority from the teacher to the community, but without necessarily being so rigid about the role of teacher and student. I'm not sure how to put this, but, you know, the question I asked her that I think stopped her in her tracks was, well, in that community, can a teacher be a student?
0: Yeah, and this is of course one of the issues that's getting worked out. I think it's in process right now. What roles do teachers have in the community, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. But that's part of the living process of figuring this out. Yes. The thing that's so interesting is that at least so far it works. You know, it's a completely vibrant,
1: yes, self-organizing. Interesting,
0: self-organizing center yes right
1: and one of the few if only of its kind that i'm aware of
0: yeah in the world currently so mm-hmm. that's been really really fascinating and to me that points again right towards metadharma in the social sense like hey this is a sangha
1: yes this is a different example of how sanghas could be run
0: i remember Tiknat han saying the future he said this like in the 90s the future buddha will be a sangha yes right? it won't be just one person
1: Yeah. I like that. And, and, you know, I think it can get stuck in a kind of egalitarian, pluralistic, what Wilbur called like a flatland, you know, where hierarchy is completely flattened in some sense, or like, you know, maybe the pendulum swings too far toward the other side of like, Could say communism is like that too. (laughs) It's like we're going to arrest, you know, you're going to take all of the means of production, you know, and give it all to the workers or or whatever. Or, you know, like the state's going to take it all on and just run it. You know, it's like then you get the concentration of power and authority in some other place, and then you're going to run into the same or different kinds of problems. You know, anywhere there's authoritarianism, anywhere there's like too much power collecting, you get problems. Part of the Buddhist Geeks Farm vision is we're a holocratic, self governing farm. So I'm like a, you know, visionary leader trying to get this thing off the ground, but I wouldn't be making all the decisions. I'd have my own roles there and we'd have a governance practices and processes in place you know, that are legally binding and ways of sharing information up and down the holarchy, you know, which is sort of akin to something like cells nested within, you know, organs, you know, it's like the cells have to communicate to these larger things that they're part of, you know, information has to flow up to the higher level, and then back down for there to be kind of like this sort of integrated complex systems, you know, and the cells, they send the signal, oh, Problem, you know, it's like oh shit, and I'm bleeding. <laughs> there's a problem. You know, I'm getting pain, and there's like red stuff flowing down my arm. I mean, if I just like took a top-down approach, I'd be like, okay, that's not a problem. <laughs> I'm like bleed out and die. <laughs> so you know, it's like how do we create organizations and sanghas? This is one of my questions: metadharma sanghas that are like more like organisms. You know, in the way that they're structured, you know, where the authority and the distribution of function is distributed in such a way where they're very agile and very fluid and flexible and, you know, and anti-fragile, you know, to use Nassim Taleb's term.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting question, and I like that it's coming out of the theoretical and into the practical, you know, like people are really trying to make this work. So yes. you can assume that there's going to be some real learning going on and some powerful new structures evolving.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Something that I don't see yet, you know, to me, and I think also to you, Metaderma needs to really address racism and income inequality and systems of oppression and various types of systems of inequality. And so far, I don't see a huge amount of that happening. I know here in the Bay Area, we have the East Bay Dharma Center, which is doing quite a bit in terms of trying to get very radical with their work on racial inequality And I haven't heard of too many other places worldwide that are doing that. I mean, in America, I think there's only two centers, last I heard, is East Bay and then the one in Cambridge that actually are people of color majority.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: And so this to me is a really very interesting question and something that we need to work with a lot.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, you know, one measure is, of course, looking at the diversity of people in a community. And I think that is a really important measure metric. But, but you know, well, part of what I see also happening, like in the community that I'm working with online, which is international, and there are quite a few people of different ethnic and racial backgrounds in that group, as am I, I'm kind of a mixed, if I'm not sure I've shared this with you, a mixed Arab, Caucasian, American What I've seen happening also in the communities that I feel like are most dharma ish uh, and I'd count like Diane Musha Hamilton's work as being something very unique going on in her communities, is I've seen that in those spaces, even if they are predominantly white, that there is a new kind of conversation happening about difference. And there's more of a willingness to go into and have productive and useful and frankly, conversations that push the whole thing forward for everyone. And I feel like that is also maybe an important metric to look at is like, even if our communities are predominantly white, how are we having these conversations? Are we having these conversations? Where are these conversations leading? What is the tone of the conversation? Do people feel like they're learning from them? Or do they simply feel like they're getting shut out or excluded, whoever they are and whatever their identities are?
0: Yeah. And I think it's really fascinating the direction this conversation has been taking, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you started with a question about what do, what do the practices look like in a, in Metadharma? You know, we we're sort of brainstorming around that. And then we ended up going from talking about interpersonal practice to talking about governance practices and different kinds of Sangha structures and, you know, post-capitalist farms. <laughs> so, post-capitalist group sex farms. Yeah. Sex farms, thank you. And so it's like, Wow, to me that is actually part of metadharma. Practicing all of those different things have to be part of the practice. Otherwise, it's like we're missing something essential about the way that human beings come together and understand our reality and respond to what's around us.
0: Yeah, I think something that we mentioned briefly but is kind of missing is, you know, the contemplative activism. Mm. Which seems like almost oxymoronic, but, you know, getting out there and really doing actual political action and social work and getting involved in the community and governance and taking real action in the world so that we're not just sitting in our centers quietly wishing well for the people in, like, you know the ice concentration camps mm. but we're actually out there doing something about it and of course Bernie Glassman is sort of the superhero of engaged buddhism mm. but i think that we need to include in metadharma a very large engaged component you know as things perhaps go much more towards climate emergency yes. civilizational collapse it's just going to be more and more necessary to get out there in the world and take action.
1: I agree. I was going to say, have you seen the Extinction Rebellion Buddhist Facebook group?
0: I've really been watching the Extinction Rebellion stuff very closely, but not the Buddhist flavor of that (laughs) now.
1: Yeah, there is something interesting to be explored there.
0: So notice that almost everything that's interesting here is not what you're doing alone in a room. Yes. Right? It's either some kind of social practice with other people or these larger structures like a collective or a farm or political action group or whatever, it's very fascinating that maybe this fourth turning or X-level turning of the wheel is really very much about external social group stuff.
1: Yeah, I agree. Maybe when we are able to, and if we're able to kind of cross the Rubicon and stabilize our ecology then we'll have plenty of time for people to sit in their rooms again and explore consciousness, you know, to their heart's extent.
0: Let's hope so. Been really great talking with you, Vince.
1: Yeah, man. Likewise.
0: That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself.